It wasn't until I went through what I went through with Tiffany that I realized the dynamics of this type of violence. Hey guys, welcome back to the First Hustle Then Brunch podcast. I'm your host, Jazzy, and I'm back with another Domestic Violence Awareness Month episode, this time from the perspective of a mother. But before we get into that, I did want to mention that it's the last week of October and we still have a couple more episodes to share from this series. It turned out to be a way busier month than expected, and I kind of underestimated the feedback and reactions that I would receive after sharing a little bit about my own story and also how that would affect me emotionally. (laughs) I just, I didn't really factor that in. So I've definitely been overwhelmed at times, and at the same time, I've also never felt more supported, and it's been really great. So first of all, I appreciate all of the messages, all the calls, all the visits, That has been so, so helpful, and I'm honestly just really glad to be able to, like, tell people about what's been going on because I've been holding it in for so long. And then on top of that, my abuser's criminal case actually kicked off this month. So there's been a few hearings, and I've kind of just been dealing with a lot of legal stuff on top of all of this. But I'm really proud that we've been able to share four episodes this month that have helped so many of you. I've seen so many messages from people that have either gone through something like this or they know somebody that has and they found this series to be really helpful to just understand what they can do to help. And the content from this series has actually reached over 100,000 people thanks to one of our reels that went viral. So I'm really glad that we've been able to raise awareness and touch so many lives. And we'll wrap up the series next week with an episode on post-separation legal abuse and then another one on healing after abuse. Obviously, domestic violence is a super important topic for me, and it's something that I'll probably continue to speak on. So just because Domestic Violence Awareness Month is over doesn't mean I will stop talking about this. So let's talk about today's episode. Katherine Shellman is a dating and domestic violence advocate. She's also the mother of Tiffany Perry, who was sadly murdered days after leaving her abuser for good. Katherine founded a nonprofit called Love, which stands for Leaving Out Violence Everywhere, And through this nonprofit, she gives presentations to universities, high schools, police departments, crime victim service units, and really anyone who's willing to listen. I was really moved when I first heard Catherine's story, and I believe that hearing real-life stories can help inspire change, educate, and empower our community. Hey, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me and for providing a platform to talk about dating and domestic violence. Yeah, it's sad the way that we've been brought together, but I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and also for all the work that you're doing in this space. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so to get started, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes, you bet. Well, um, I'm Catherine Shellman, and I have been an advocate for victims of dating and domestic violence since 2011. My daughter, Tiffany Perry, was 23. She was a... uh, student at Texas State University, getting ready to graduate with a business management degree. Um, She found herself in an abusive relationship, and when she broke up with her abuser two weeks later, he shot and killed her, and then turned the gun on himself and took his own life. So I learned so much subsequent to Tiffany's murder, like, how did this even happen? How 
I mean, you just never imagine something like that. It always happens to someone else far away. No, it can happen to anyone, and it did to our family, to Tiffany. And so I learned so much subsequent to her life having been taken that I felt like I really need to share this information and and to speak out against this type of violence because nobody talks about it. It's like hidden under a rock. People are ashamed to talk about it or it's taboo or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, I started a nonprofit called Love, which is an acronym for leaving out violence everywhere. And I give presentations to whoever will listen. I've given presentations at Texas State University, University of Texas, uh, St. Edwards University, police departments, um, just it, really anyone who will listen, I will talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love the name of your organization. Thanks. So I feel like I went through something similar after I left my abuser. I started researching, obviously, just to figure out, again, like you said, how does this even happen? Um, so I was kind of in that same place of how did this even happen to me? How did I miss the signs? And then I learned how dangerous of a situation I actually was in. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to share all of this information, because I think people hear, you know, abusive relationship and they're like, yeah, you know, eventually you want to get out of it. But I know people stick around for so many different reasons, but I don't think people realize it really is a life and death situation. Yes. And I am so sorry for what you went through. I'm really happy for you that you got out of that situation because it is more difficult than people can imagine. And so thank goodness, good for you that you were able to get away. Yeah, thank you so much. So uh, in all the research that you've done and the experiences that you've had, what are some common misconceptions that people have about abusers and domestic violence overall? Well, I think a lot of people think that victims are weak people. And that's a total misconception. Um, I, you know, sometimes probably there, you know, it, it happens to everybody, different personalities, different backgrounds. No one group holds the uh, monopoly on this type of violence. But I think the misconception is, well, um, that victim must like it or she's weak and can't stand up for herself. And that's not true. I mean, I can speak from experience. My daughter Tiffany was, you know, a head cheerleader in high school, president of the National Honor Society, very determined, had her college career planned out and what she was going to do after college, very strong, very independent. And this happened to her. And Mm -hmm. it's because it's not that an abuser on date number one will say, I'm going to be the perfect boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, for six months or a year. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to slowly start grooming you and convincing you that you need to be with me, gaslighting you, blah, 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 and then I'm going to kill you. I mean, if it was that blatantly obvious, who would have a second date? It's not. These things take time. And so Mm -hmm. um, that's where a lot of the shame comes in, too. Victims are like how did I get in this situation? Why didn't I see it coming? How do I get out? Mm -hmm. And so that, that's the beginning of the misconceptions. Um, some people think she must like it. Others think, um, victims just don't know any better. And it's not like you mentioned earlier, leaving is very, very difficult. And by the time you really realize you're in a really bad situation, um, it's life or death to leave. Yeah, definitely. And I know you mentioned, you know, it was important for you to speak out about this. For one, why do you think it's so important? I think you have already kind of answered that question. But also, did you encounter any shame or did you feel um, 
I guess, afraid a little bit to speak out about this? You know, I wasn't afraid to speak out about this um, and start my nonprofit and stuff uh, because I decided to do that after Tiffany's murder, when I had learned everything I had learned. When I initially started hearing some things from Tiffany about the type of relationship that she was in, um, I definitely took it seriously, but what I didn't realize until after was that she was only giving the tip of the iceberg, and most victims do. I call it like throwing out breadcrumbs, like Tiffany would tell me one little thing, mm-hmm. and one of her friends one little thing. And it wasn't until my quest to find out how did this even happen to my baby, um, I, I got all of her friends and family and all of us together and was like, let's have a discussion. What happened here? How did this come about. Mm-hmm. And that's when we all learned, you know what, uh, we each had a piece of the puzzle and, and we still, none of us know, I'm sure, everything that Tiffany went through. Right. But in going through some of uh, the things Tiffany left behind and, um, you know, discussions she had with other people, we had a more clear picture of what she was going through. So I'm sorry, your question was... Yeah, it was Essentially, like, did you feel any shame? Did you have feel any fear when you were kind of sharing that story and speaking out against domestic violence? Because it is hard to speak up about this stuff. Yeah, you know, um, when Tiffany was going through this uh, abuse, the few things that she told me led me to believe, shoot, maybe let's get her into counseling. Like maybe a professional can get through to her or something because I victim blamed a lot. Mm-hmm not knowing mm-hmm. that by saying to her, why don't you just leave? Like, it's not that simple. Right. Um, if they can leave, victims will. Um, so anyway, I, I had paid for her to go to her first counseling session with a woman who specialized in, like, empowerment, female empowerment. Um I told her I would pay for the first session, and if she liked it and wanted to continue going, I would continue to pay, but just go check it out and see if it's something you would like. And she said she didn't walk away with anything. And I feel like that particular psychiatrist did her best, but she was not specifically trained in dating and domestic violence. And this type of violence is a completely different animal. Right. I went to a counselor, like, you know, I think my daughter's being abused. What do I do? And the advice I was given by my psychiatrist was, well, you need to make her stand on her own two feet. You need to tell her not to call you in the middle of the night if she needs help, not oh, wow. to, you know, ask for anything from you. She needs to figure it out and have her own plan. Yeah, and that's the complete opposite thing of what needs to happen because yeah yeah, one of the things abusers do is they isolate their victims they take away their safety net the friends the family the people that love and care for the victim Um, and so I not knowing followed her advice and I said hey Tiff you know you got to try to stand on your own two feet and have your own plan going on and you know don't call me because I'm not gonna you know I mean I I feel so horrible now but I did what I thought was right at the time but again it was the completely wrong advice because the advice came from someone who was caring and legitimately wanted to help but knew nothing about dating and domestic violence yeah 
Yeah, you bring up a really good point, and it's something that we haven't touched on in any of the other episodes related to this, Um, but counselors and therapists, professionals, I feel like there probably should be more training on how to handle domestic violence, dating violence, or how to even spot it in relationships, because for, in my situation, we, you know, something happened, and I told him, I'm leaving, like, that's it, I'm done, I'm getting out of here, and his response to me was, okay, I'll do counseling. Like I'll do whatever to get you to stay. So we actually did couples counseling and we did just a few sessions. And I used that opportunity to try and tell this therapist what was happening and very clearly said, he's controlling, he does this and that. And we went to a man and he just completely just missed it. (laughs) It was, it was really obvious looking back at like the things I said. And actually in one of those sessions, he told the counselor that he threw something at me and that counselor never even stopped to say, wait, what? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I left and I never went back to that counselor and I was tempted to just (laughs) straight up call them out in this podcast, but I won't, but I just feel like there should definitely be more training on how to recognize domestic violence in a situation like that. Absolutely. And, you know, most of society just does not understand this type of violence. And, you know, I can't blame people. It's Mm -hmm. like, um, people come up to me and, and ask like, um, how did it go on for so long? Like, how did you, you know, why, why didn't you do something more? And it's like, you know, I I can't blame them for thinking that way because I used to think that way. It wasn't until I went through what I went through with Tiffany that I realized the dynamics of this type of violence. And so, but you're right. I, you know, that maybe that's my next uh, mountain I'll choose to climb is to, to try and get um, counseling professionals to, understand that there are details about dating and domestic violence that don't take place in other situations like you experienced, you know? Right. Yeah. And there's definitely, um, you know, that element of just maybe they're not being honest. So I could have even been more honest with what was happening. But I mean, when he says I threw something at her, (laughs) that should have been pretty obvious. My family, friends, not a single person knew that this was going on. I kept it to myself. I had actually been asked, you know, people had kind of noticed some interactions with the two of us and asked me within a couple of months um, prior, like, was I afraid of him? Has he done anything to hurt me or scare me? And I just lied, you know, Um, because I first of all, the question threw me off because I didn't even realize other people were kind of picking up on it. And um, yeah, I didn't know how to handle the situation. So when I heard your story and how Tiffany never shared, you know, Mm -hmm. the full details with anyone else and you guys all had the breadcrumbs and I could relate to that for sure, which, you know, was very eye opening. So, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty common. And, you know, family and friends can be uh, fooled by abusers very much. So an example would be, Tiffany would go out with her girlfriends and be shooting pool or something. And, um, her abuser, Kenny, would just show up, like, uninvited. And he would walk in and walk up to the group and say, hey, Tiffany, I, you know, I know you're a college student, you're on a budget, whatever, I want to take you to a really nice dinner. And all of her friends are thinking, oh, how sweet, he came all the way over here to take her to dinner. And 
initially that does sound really sweet and really kind that he would do that, take her out to a nice dinner and treat her to, you know, whatever, a nice meal. But what he was actually doing was controlling her and trying to or convincing her friends that he really was a nice guy. But slowly over time, he would Mm -hmm. do things like this to isolate her from her friends. But her friends didn't catch on right away until it turned into things like one of Tiffany's friends was at Tiffany's house and Tiffany and Kenny were supposed to go out and she put on this outfit. And he didn't say to her, take that off. I don't want you to wear that. What he said to her was, Mm-hmm. Are you sure you want to wear that? Like, you know, maybe it's kind of cold out or maybe you want to wear something that covers you a little bit more, you know. Mm-hmm. One, that was his segue into controlling her and what she wore. And two, it was a way to make her doubt herself. Oh, you know, maybe this is too revealing or maybe it's cold out. Maybe, okay, let me change. And so that's part of the grooming that takes place uh, between a, a victim and her abuser. Yeah, it definitely starts off subtly. And, you know, you saying that too just reminds me of um, different events and things that would happen that he would either want to go. And, like, I would go to brunch with my girlfriends all the time. And he insisted that he needs to go. And I would tell him, this is all girls. Like, no one else is bringing their boyfriends, you know? So, and he'd just be like, I think you're just making that up. Like, if I went, they wouldn't care. And so, yeah, little things like that, or if he was around my friends at all, then it'd be like, okay, what'd they think about me? What'd they say about me? You know, like mm-hmm. he definitely wanted to have that perception of being this great guy. So, yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to give you the opportunity to share Tiffany's story more, you know, have time to do that. So let's start at the beginning. You told us a little bit about Tiffany and her background, but you want to talk about what she was doing when she met Kenny and a little bit about him too? Sure, you bet. Yeah. Um, Tiffany met Kenny when she was a hostess at a restaurant. She had just turned 18 and the restaurant was Texas Land and Cattle Company. And Kenny walked in and she thought, wow, this guy's really good looking. And she said sparks were flying and he, you know, introduced himself and gave her his phone number. And when Tiffany first told me about Kenny, she said, you know, he's super nice and he wants to take me on a date and he wants to take me to a movie. And I'm thinking, okay, that's a safe place. You know, he seems like a nice guy. They'll be somewhere public, whatever. Um, Sounds like a good idea. Little did I know that she was going to meet her abuser and murderer. Um, Kenny was a, um, MMA fighter. I think they call it like a cage Mm -hmm. fighter. Yeah. He trained all the time. Um, he lifted weights and was a very, he was about six foot and a very, uh, strong, very big fellow. Um, the more and more involved he got in Tiffany's life, the more he injected himself into all of the people that surrounded her. Um, Tiffany wanted to finish her degree. And Kenny told her, you know what, I'll pay for you to go to school. Um, Let's just move to Nevada, to Las Vegas. My dad has uh, leased a house that's a big two-bedroom house, and now he's getting a job transfer, but his lease isn't up. So let, you know, you and I can go live there and we'll take over the lease, whatever, and I'll pay for your school, whatever. That was him isolating her. So she got to Vegas and got a job um, because he didn't 
end up paying for anything. So she worked full-time, went to school full-time, and Kenny started to show up at her office and befriended the owner of the company and started to weight train the owner of the company. So which further isolated Tiffany because she had no friends. He occupied all her time. She couldn't tell anybody at work what was going on with her. Um, And I started to notice the only time Tiffany would talk to me was when she was driving to or from work or out walking the dog. And I'm like, Tiffany, you know, what's going on? I mean, I know this, this is not what, what's happening. Right. And she's like, Oh, nothing, mom. I just, this is when I have free time and I'm not studying and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, that something doesn't sound right. So I said to her, you know, let's, let me come out for a weekend. Well, you know, you can show me Vegas and whatever. And we did that for three or four times. And then one day Tiffany called me and said, well, she was crying hysterically. And I I said, baby, calm down. What's happening? I can't understand you. What she told me was that some woman came into her work and said, my name is so-and-so, and Kenny is my boyfriend. And every weekend that your mother comes out and you guys go stay in a hotel and have girls' time, I'm at your house with Kenny. And she proceeded to describe to Tiffany what shampoo bottles were in the shower, where the dog dishes were, what paintings were on the wall or whatever. And so, you know, Tiffany was obviously uh, caught off guard and, and hurt. I said to her, baby, don't go home. You're obviously, you know, hysterical as anybody would be. I'm going to book us a room at the Hard Rock Hotel. Go there. Wait for me. I'm on the next flight. I'm on my way. She went to the Hard Rock. I didn't even pack a toothbrush. I grabbed my purse, ran out the door. Um, no flights were leaving Austin. I left out of San Antonio on the next flight got to um, the hotel. And the plan I made was that we would call police and ask for assistance, tell them, look, my, we need to move my daughter's things out. We don't know if he's going to be there or not. Can you be present and help us if something goes down? Mm -hmm. They agreed to be there for 20 minutes. So um, the next morning I rented a U-Haul. I rented a trailer for her car. We got a bunch of boxes taped them all with the lids open, ready to just throw stuff in there. And initially I said to Tiffany, just get your bag. Let's go. You don't need anything. Mm -hmm. And she said, mom, this is it. I want to break up with him for the final time because she had broken up with him like five or six times before, which is common on average victims break up with their abusers anywhere from seven to 12 times before it's a permanent breakup. So I thought, okay, if this is what it takes to get her out permanently, Let's get her stuff. We'll drive the long way home, take back roads, get her home safe. Um, But it was odd because as Tiffany was walking around gathering her things, he was like fake crying and she would pick something up and he'd be like, that's mine. Don't take that. That's mine. Put it down. Mm -hmm. You know, like just very strange. But the police uh, asked him to go downstairs finally, and we got her things. We we drove home. But another mistake I made, which I would want to tell other parents or family members not to make, was that when we got Tiffany back to Texas, I got her an apartment. This is where you're going to live. You're going to go to school at Texas State. You're going to hang out with us. at our. We had a small ranch in, in Wimberley just outside Austin. Um, and you know, we're going to 
put you to work and pay you 15 bucks an hour just to keep you close to us, whatever. And so she went from being told what to do by her abuser to being told what to do by her mother. Mm. Myself, I'm thinking she wants to go to school. She needs to live in a place. You know, I'm thinking I'm doing good and I'm not. The best thing you can do for a victim is not tell them you need to leave. You need to do this. You need to go here. You need to go there. The best thing to do is to ask questions like, what are your options? What do you want? Because all Mm -hmm. decisions have been taken away while they've been in this abusive relationship. Everything from what makeup they can or can't wear, what they, what they can do, where they can go, if they can drive the car, what they do with their paycheck. And so to begin the process of helping them realize that they need to get out of this relationship or that it's possible and they can get out is to give the power back to them. Um, it allows them to think, you know what, what do I want? What am I capable of doing? So I'm sorry, I think I just jumped no, to other, you know, uh, subjects. But that that's kind of how things started with Tiffany and Kenny. It started out with, he's a nice guy, let's go to the movies. And, you know, over time, spread very quickly to something very toxic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So were you aware that she had attempted to break up with him several times before, you know, the final time? Yes, Um uh, One day, Tiffany said to me, I want to break up with Kenny, but he's not going to let me. Mm. So will you come meet me at my apartment and help me? Sure, baby. I'm like, he won't let her. I'm thinking he loves her so much. He just, you know, is going to be crying or, Mm -hmm. you know, just in her face like, I don't let me. I help, you know, whatever. So I did. I went and showed up and, and, uh, brought some boxes and we moved her out and she broke up with him and went to another apartment in Austin. And sadly, one of her friends told Kenny the name of the apartment complex that she had moved to. So he went to that apartment complex and waited in his car because he saw where her car was parked and waited and waited and waited to see what building or what apartment she was coming from. Wow. Tiffany called me from her apartment and said, he's downstairs, like, I I can see his car out the window, he's waiting. I said, immediately call the police, hang up with me, call the police, tell them what's going on. Mm -hmm. And after Tiffany was murdered, I I got a copy of the final police report. I felt like I couldn't be with Tiffany when he shot her. I couldn't jump in front of the gun. I couldn't conk him on the head. I couldn't, I couldn't be there and I it's hard to explain why I got the report but I felt like I couldn't be there with her I don't want to close my eyes and go I don't she's dead I don't care what happened it's like you know if you've been raped or something totally traumatic happens to you it doesn't help the situation or help remove the fact that the rape happened by telling a friend but somehow it it's um I don't know. It just seems like the right thing to do. And that felt like the right thing to do. But in the process of reading the police report, um, an officer did file a report saying that um, Tiffany was afraid to leave her apartment because her abuser was downstairs. Um, But then when he asked her if she wanted to press some kind of charges, her response was, no, I don't want to press charges. I just, you know, it's fine. Never mind. I'll be okay. And he pressed the issue. Mm -hmm. You know, I can come and take a report. And her response was, no, I'll be fine. So it's kind of like she reached out for help, 
but because she was so strong and because she was so um, self-sufficient and determined, whatever, she thought, I can handle this. Yeah. I'm sure it was that in a combination of she was also afraid of him. You know, if she did press charges, what would happen after that, you know? Good point. Oh, my gosh. You know what? That reminds me of something. When we got her back from Vegas, I asked her to go and file a report. And she was so hesitant. I didn't realize at the time I thought she was being stubborn. She wasn't being stubborn. She was so afraid. And so I think she went in. I know she went in, but I I couldn't go in with her. And and I don't know what she put in the report, but I doubt it was all of the plethora of things that she had experienced and was going through. So Mm -hmm. um, the bottom line was that he was in Nevada. She's in Texas. Until he does something to her here in Texas, there's nothing we can do, law enforcement said. Mm. So it's like, what do you wait around and for someone for her to get harmed before we can get help? And, you know, I, I guess that's the way the laws are written. But the police department here in San Marcos was kind enough to say we'll make extra, you know, drive bys in the neighborhood and, and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was something that made us feel a little bit better. But yeah, anyway, yeah. In answer to your question, I, I knew she'd broken up with them several times. Mm-hmm. Did the police ever mention that she could get a protective order against him? No. And in fact, here's a prime example of when they should have said that. Tiffany and I were very close. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always say that, excuse me, I forgot sometimes where I left off and she began. We were just so very close. And one evening she said to me, Mom, let's go out tonight. So-and-so, this friend of mine and I are going out. Why don't you join us? We'll go downtown to 6th Street. Okay, baby, yeah, let's do it. I'll be, you know, designated driver. So we went down to 6th Street in downtown Austin, which is a bunch of different clubs and restaurants. There's like karaoke and country western and jazz and all kinds of different places to go. Mm -hmm. And we walked into one club that has an open rooftop and we're having a good time. We're just, you know, talking and having a drink. I wasn't, but she and her friend were, and there's some guy in the corner like playing his guitar. And all of a sudden I look over and Kenny's there and he's grabbed her by the arm and he's dragging her down the stairs down to sixth street. I'm going, what the hell? And so I run after them and run in front of him and I'm pushing him in the chest. Stop it. This is girls night out. What are you doing? You don't belong here, whatever. What I didn't realize is that there were officers standing behind me and Kenny leaned over my shoulder and said, she's assaulting me. Wow. So the officers came over and detained me and I'm like, you don't understand. Yeah, he's taking her. He's an abuser. That's my daughter. It's girls night out. Give us your ID. I'm like, go, please help. You know, he's no, give us your ID. So I pull up my ID. I explain again what's happening. Um, They didn't detain Tiffany's friend. She went running after Kenny and Tiffany. By the time they released me and gave me my ID, I'm like, well, damn it. Now I have to run in the direction where I I have no idea where she's gone. So I, I ran in the direction they were walking and my phone rings and it's Tiffany's friend. She's like, help, I'm in the alley getting arrested. Click, the phone goes dead. What, what alley? So I'm running, oh my gosh. 
Yeah, and I I happen to look, and son of a gun, there she is. So I run down the alley. I tell the officers, look, this is my daughter's friend. This is what happened. Her abuser came and dragged her out. So they released her to my custody. I guess they had handcuffed her because she had had some drinks and was cussing at them. You so-and-so's, you know, you're not helping, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So I said to the officers after they released her, whatever, um, my daughter's gone now. Her abuser took her. I don't know what's going to happen to her. I have to go to his apartment. We need to find out if she's okay. And what they said to me was, ma'am, if you show up at his apartment, we're going to arrest you because we saw you assaulting him. So I'm like incredulous that you have, I don't understand this. Why is this happening? Like I have no, and my daughter has no help. Yeah. And I think there again, it's that police are not trained in depth in dating and domestic violence. Mm -hmm. They don't know what abusers are capable of, apparently, or they would have mentioned to me, let's start the process of a restraining order or a protective order. Yeah. So it was a very long and sleepless night for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and and here's, here's something to note. Awake all night, I called Tiffany at her place of business in the morning and her work, and I said, baby, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. Kenny told me that he showed up where we were because you were drunk and he wanted to drive me home. And I said, baby, first of all, you know, that's not right. I was designated driver. Remember I said, and if I was drunk, the officers would have known they wouldn't have released your friend to me. Mm -hmm. You know, he's lying to you. So that was another gaslighting from Kenny to Tiffany. He had her convinced that he was there to help her. And that's why she walked with him. Because my question was blaming her. Why the hell didn't Mm -hmm. you kick and punch and try to get away from him? You walked with him. Well, she knew what he was capable of. And if she fought, she knew what she was going to get. So she put her head down and just kind of with him. And she said, you know what, mom, I almost, it's like I blacked out. She's like, I, I don't remember. I remember him showing up and, and that's all I remember. So that's the level of abuse she had experienced. Mm-hmm. She knew it was going to be so horrible that she just put her head down and just went with him. Yeah. And it sounds like he knew how close the two of you were and he made it his mission to try and separate you two. Absolutely. Which is terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot believe that you were detained Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was frightening because you think, mm-hmm. oh, they're police officers. They're going to help make this wrong right. And I don't know if they just didn't take it seriously enough or if he was so calm and confident. You know, she's assaulting me. I don't know. I, I just don't have an answer for that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't talk about this, but I'm going to tell you that that night, I called a friend of mine. He's six six, like two eighty. He's a volunteer fireman, uh, worked undercover for the sheriff's department. Mm. And I said to him, and you you don't have to, you know, put this out there. But I said to him, look, this is what has just happened. I can't get help from anyone. If I show up there, I'm gonna get arrested. Can you beat the shit out of this guy? Like I don't know. Can you help me do something? Get my daughter back. Mm-hmm. 
And what he said to me was, yes, I have informants that would do that. He said, however, if she's not ready to leave him and we do this to him and bring him, we can take him within an inch of his life. He is going to pound her more to build up his confidence, his masculinity, his whatever, mm-hmm. um, which will make things worse for Tiffany. So if you don't think she's ready to leave him, we, we shouldn't touch him. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I prayed about it and thought better about it and was like, okay, no, that's not the right thing. You know, yeah. we need to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But that's honestly, I think what any parent would do, you know, if their child was in danger. So that's completely understandable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that the police were not there to help you in that situation. And I feel like that is also something that people worry about. I know that a lot of states have where I forget what the rule is called, but basically if someone, if a police officer is called to a domestic incident, they have to arrest somebody. And so Mm -hmm. you don't know if they're going to, you know, decide that you are the aggressor instead and arrest you and, yeah, so calling the police is also kind of scary in that moment, too. You don't know how it's going to turn out, if they're going to help you, or if this person's just going to be even more angry at you because you called the police. So, yes, yeah. that is a very, very good point. You know, I want to also mention, though, that if you cannot file a police report, hide a journal or a notebook or something somewhere. Write down and keep track of every incident of abuse, whether it happens at home, away, keep track of who were witnesses, who saw it happen. Because if or when you can Mm -hmm. file a police report against your abuser, you will have other information. You know, when when you're being abused, you're in a traumatic state and you go into survival mode and you don't always remember dates and times and details. So Uh, It is helpful to keep some kind of a journal hidden somewhere where your abuser is not going to find it um, to have that with you. Now, I will Mm -hmm. tell you that you're going to have to hide it somewhere very good because Tiffany kept a journal and she told me one day, a diary, that she kept it between the mattresses and that not only did Kenny find it and read it, he wrote in it. Wow. So keep track of these things. It, email it to a loved one and then delete it find a way to keep track of these things but do so very carefully cover your tracks mm-hmm. yeah I would definitely say probably an electronic version is safer yeah. just because yeah. it is harder but I know there are people who go through your phone so there are some apps that you can download you know I know there's a calculator one that you can hide things in so oh I yeah, didn't know definitely that. look that awesome. up I had a situation where I had mm-hmm, yeah it looks like a calculator and then you can save photos videos notes and stuff like that and I haven't used it but I've seen that come up on TikTok and that sort of thing um oh, great and I know for me I had a Google Drive folder that I was uploading things to like screenshots of messages audio recordings, videos, all of that stuff was saved into a Google Drive folder. So that is another option too. The only thing is, if something had happened to me, no one would probably have had access to that. So Mm. I would also, if you trust a friend, share it with them too. You know, now looking back, I I think like, yeah, I should have given access to somebody else. And now 
somebody else does have access. Multiple people have access to these things now. So yeah, I definitely want to make sure that if anything were to happen, all of this stuff will come out. Very good advice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then also with police officers, I think a lot of times you have to advocate for yourself. Unfortunately, Um, I tried to file a report. They told me that, that I couldn't file a report. Basically, they said that if they couldn't see any marks on me, then there was nothing they could do. And oh, so that was really, wow. yeah, <laughs> my jaw dropped the same way that yours did. Like I w- was shocked and just felt so hopeless. And that oh. was really disappointing for me. Um, and I thought that it was kind of like over. Like I didn't know what to do, even though I had recorded the situation. I'm like, I have it recorded. Like, <laughs> what do you mean you can't do anything? Wow. Um, so, oh, yeah. And then they sweet. later told me, well, if you want to do anything, you're going to have to go to the magistrate. So that that's like wait until something really bad happens to you before you come and let us know. Like mm-hmm. that, that's just terrible and frustrating. And again, maybe I need to speak to more police departments because I guess they think they're doing the right thing. They, you know, man, we have to see the abuse. I mean, there's a lot of different types of abuse. There's financial abuse, verbal abuse. It's all abuse. How do mm-hmm. you prove? And, and even if you have, proof of verbal abuse. It sounds like you presented that and they still couldn't do anything with it. Wow. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thank you. I've learned so much since going through this and I feel terrible for the people that have no proof at all because they're going to have a really hard time. Like that's just the reality of it. They're going to have a really hard time getting any sort of protective order or anyone to listen to them at all. Um, So I'm grateful that I had some proof. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's hard. You know, I, I just want to mention too, that um, protective orders are a must really try to get one have it on record that this person is treating you poorly, but also know that it's a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And abusers have to be willing to follow the law to stay a thousand yards or whatever it is away from you to not go to your place of business. To not. So just because you have a protective order doesn't necessarily mean there's a protective shield around you. Right. It's necessary. It should be done if you mm-hmm. can get it done, but still you know, keep your an antenna up and, and be leery and, and wary about this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have a protective order now, so um, I was able to get one, but yeah, same thing. Like it is a piece of paper. I feel better having it, yeah. but I'm also aware that anything can happen. So yeah. yeah. And I know I just mentioned that there's a calculator app. There's another app that I want to mention that I found out about. It's called Noonlight. So N-O-O-N light. Um, and it actually has a panic button on there. Yeah. This would be really good for you to share, especially on college campuses. So essentially how it works is when you're, you know, maybe walking to your car late at night or honestly anytime, or if you're in an abusive situation, you have this app on your phone, there's a button. If you press and hold it down while you're walking to your car or, you know, out and about and you release your thumb off that button, it will start a countdown. And if you don't put in your pen when that countdown ends, they'll go ahead and contact law enforcement. And oh, it wow. is apparently more precise as far as your location than when you call 911. Because, you know, sometimes 911 can't find your exact location. Apparently it uses the same technology as like Uber and Lyft and that sort of thing to find your more precise location. And 
what I like about it too, is you can just use it as a panic button instead. So you can open this app and just click the button one time and you know, now law enforcement is alerted on top of that. It also notifies, you can set um, emergency contacts. And so it'll notify all of them of your last location and that your panic button went off. And you can also go in and add details of where you're at, kind of like breadcrumbs almost. So for example, if you were going out on a date with somebody new, you could go in there and type, I'm going on a date with this guy. His name is blank. Here's a description of what he looks like. Here's a description of his car and that would automatically be saved in there so that if something happened, you hit that panic button, that information would be shared also with law enforcement. So I heard about that and I was like, Oh my gosh, I need this app (laughs) and I'm going to tell everyone about this. So I would definitely recommend that too, because there's a lot of situations where you may not even be able to call um, police and that would make it a lot easier for you. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And that's called Noonlight. Yes, it is like a white background with a blue circle is the picture. Awesome. Yeah, the icon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot, I think, that we can all learn from these experiences. And it seems like, honestly, the more I've learned that survivors and the families of victims and survivors are the ones that are kind of driving domestic violence awareness and change that's happening. Mm -hmm. So we definitely need, you know, other advocates to come in and and help drive this change. But I think it is primarily up to us because we're the ones that have lived through it and kind of know Mm -hmm. what is actually happening in these Mm -hmm. circumstances. Is that what you've kind of seen too in your work? Yeah, it is. um, Because people don't know the fine details of what happens in this type of relationship and how great of you to use your platform to bring awareness to it. You know, that's amazing. And, you know, sorry, while we're talking about um, safety and precautions and and that kind of thing, can I just go into a little bit about what I've learned about keeping safe and things to put in place before uh, you actually leave? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, It's -hmm. a good idea to have an emergency word or phrase with someone that you trust. Um, For instance... If I were to be texting my other daughter, Becky, and say to her this particular question, if she, if the answer didn't come back to me, the proper answer, it's not her I'm talking to. Mm. It's somebody else. It's an abuser. It's someone I don't want to be talking to. Mm-hmm. So have a question and an answer in place so that you know who you're talking to. That's a good idea. Additionally, have a word or a phrase that is really general that you can just say to your mother, your friend, whoever. And the person on the other end of the line knows, okay, that word means all hell is breaking loose, sell, send law enforcement, whoever, come to my aid. That's another good thing to have in place. Um, Have a to-go bag hidden somewhere or at a friend's house. And in this bag, you should have emergency things like important documents. Um, Oftentimes abusers will take the wallet or whatever away from the victim. So if you have a photocopy even of your driver's license, your social security card, important documents for your children, cash, um, if you can set up a um, safe deposit box in advance, that's a good thing to have. Um, Have a prepaid cell phone. 
so that, um, oh, but also write down somewhere or send someone, email yourself, whatever, everybody's phone numbers, because today we all just do the speed dial thing. We press on the person, That's we true. Call, you know, we don't necessarily have phone numbers memorized. Um, but these are, are things that you can do to, um, you know, put things in place, uh, have, if you can have a neighbor or someone you can run to, if you, if you're being abused and all you can do is run out the door with the clothes on your back, do so. If you don't have a neighbor, run to a park, a business, um, a shopping mall, a gas station, somewhere, uh, if you can, where other people will be, um, they may not be able to, uh, jump in front of the abuser and protect you, but, um, they can see that you're in need and can make a phone call for you. So um, these are just ways you can help make yourself safe because the most dangerous time in an abusive relationship is not necessarily when you're in the relationship. It's when you've left or you're leaving because this type of relationship is all about power and control. And when the abuser is losing control, that's when they go into panic mode. I liken abusers to parasites and I don't say that to be ugly. I mean that because an abuser will latch on to their host and will literally suck the life out of that host just to get what they need. So, um, yeah, very important to have these things put in place uh, so that you can help yourself in the event you need to leave last minute. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really, really good tips. And I know that you have some experience helping women leave abusive relationships do you have any stories that you'd like to share? I do. Um, I moved a little bit away from giving presentations and saw a need to actually physically help victims leave their abusers. And that's rather scary because that gets yourself directly involved in a situation that is very dangerous. Um, the most dangerous one I did was I'm so protective of the victims, I'm not even going to tell you what state it occurred in, but I flew to another state mm -hmm. where um, a victim was living. Uh, a friend of hers lives here in Texas and, and was a kind of a distant friend of mine and asked for help. And in the process of this person telling me about her friend in the other state being abused, um, within a matter of like three days, things went from this is happening to my friend, this is happening to my friend, this is happening to my friend. By day number three, I'm going, this woman's not going to live another day. This, I need to leave now. Mm. So I told my husband I'm off and I uh, took a flight in the next morning. I this sounds foolish, but I had a disguise. I did not want to show up looking anything like myself. If there's a ring phone, you know, uh, camera out mm -hmm. front, if the neighbor's trying to describe right. me, mm -hmm. he sees me, no, I'm going to look different. Yeah. Um, I called when I got their local law enforcement. I said, this is what's happening. This woman and her three children, um, I'm here to physically help her leave. She has no transportation. She has no money. He has taken everything from her, her wallet, everything. Um, and we need to do this like last minute because she tells me the same day he leaves for beer and cigarettes and is gone for like five minutes. So um, it was a sheriff. He was very kind. He showed up. We parked down the block. Um, last minute, her abuser had 
disconnected her cell phone or cut off the cell phone or whatever. I'm not a technology-driven person. I didn't know that you can still um, like text on a phone. If, if you can't use it like a normal phone, you can still communicate with someone on it, apparently. Mm. But she had texted me and yeah. said, I have to text you. I'll have to, you know, I can't call you. He's shut off my phone or whatever. So a few hours later, she texted me and said, he's gone. He's going to be back within five minutes. So the sheriff and I jetted over to her house. I had asked her to stay in the house until the officer comes up and knocks on the door. But she saw us pull up, ran out, one kid in her arm, the other one by the hand, the other one running behind her, jumped in the van I had rented. And the sheriff was kind enough to say, you know, I'll follow you until we leave the county. Mm. But I can't go any further than that. So that that was awesome that he was willing to do that. Mm Um, I immediately had her throw her phone out the window. Oftentimes abusers will put tracking apps or whatever on the cell phone. Uh, mm-hmm. Before doing so, I had her write down, you know, her close friends, her you know, mom's number, whatever. So halfway back to Texas, um, it took us two days to drive. She gets a call from the abuser's parole officer, puts it on speakerphone. And this uh, parole officer had an informant in his office. And the informant proceeds to say that this abuser was a member of the Bloods or the Crips, I don't remember which, one of these big gangs, and has put an an SOS out on this victim. Like, what the hell is an SOS? SOS is gang term for shoot on sight. So he put her photo and this message out to everybody in the gang, shoot her on sight. So the parole officer was calling her to give her this warning, you know, talk about being afraid, you know, it was just shocking. So anyway, we, we Mm -hmm. just took the, the long route home. The friend of hers that lives here in Texas, um, I, I had contacted her to meet us in an undisclosed location, not at her home. Um, I called mm-hmm. local law enforcement to meet us there, you know, to do the change off because she was going to stay with this friend for however long it took her to get back on her feet or whatever. So, you know, that that was just very frightening. And going into it, I didn't realize, you know, obviously how bad it could be and how much my life and her life could really be in danger. Right. But, um, you know, and, and honestly, um, I did learn that she ended up going back to her abuser, which, you know, I can't be angry. She has to leave when she's totally ready. And she wasn't ready at that point. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I don't mind having gone through that because it was an opportunity for her to get away. It was a chance. And I had to take that chance. That might have been her only chance. So, um, yeah, don't give up hope on victims, on people you know that are being abused. Um, Don't think poorly of them if they go back. There's a lot of reasons for it. Um, I do want to mention quickly Mm -hmm. that um, Tiffany knew that herself and her whole family was in danger, that all of our lives were in danger. And the reason I know this is because from the time my girls were in middle school, they kept diaries. And Tiffany and her younger sister, Becky, the rule between the two of them was only we'll read each other's diaries and no one else. When Tiffany was murdered, of course, Becky inherited 
Tiffany's diary. And Becky said to me, Mom, I'm going to read one entry to you and one entry alone. I'm like, okay, baby, what is it? Apparently, Tiffany had written that every day her abuser told her that if she ever left him, he would kill her. And if he couldn't find her, he would kill her parents because he knows where they live. So when victims are afraid to leave or they have left and, and they panic and back out and go back, there are a lot of reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Lives are at stake and not just the victim's life. Yeah. You know, um, Tiffany was graduating two weeks before um, her murder. She was about to graduate um, with her college degree. And I had some money when my parents passed. I inherited their little Honda Accord car. I sold it and put that money aside. And I told my girls, look, when you guys graduate college, take this money. Go to Italy. That, that's where our people are from. Um, you know, stay as long as the money will last Tiffany asked for a one-way ticket. Um, When Tiffany turned 21, Kenny had, as a birthday present, taken her to a tattoo artist and had his initials tattooed on her lower back. Tiffany had uh, booked a plane ticket with a good friend of hers to go back to Vegas where he had that tattoo put on her and have that tattoo artist change it into a phoenix. She was becoming the phoenix. She was rebirthing herself. She was going to leave Kenny, and he knew it. That's why he killed her. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just uh, it's, it's multifaceted, this whole dating and domestic violence thing, because there are so many things that most people don't know about this type of relationship until, sadly, you go through it with someone you love or go through it yourself like you did. Mm-hmm. So if anything... Uh, if anyone can take something away from listening to us today, I would hope that it would be to not victim blame, to not give up on the victim, to always ask them, what can I do for you? What would you like? Um, And just stick with it. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And also I think you offer a unique perspective as a parent going through this situation, what advice would you have for other parents and loved ones who realize that, you know, someone that they love, maybe a daughter, family member, is the victim of domestic abuse and even those who might even have been killed um, by their abusers, you know, what advice would you have for, for those parents? Well, I would say that if you have a family member who is currently in this type of relationship, Know that whatever you think you know is just the tip of the iceberg, sadly. For a lot of reasons, victims don't tell anybody the depth of the abuse that they are experiencing. They don't want to worry you. They're ashamed. They think they can get out. They think it wouldn't help anyway. Their lives are in danger. Your life is in danger. There's a lot of reasons why they can't share because they know you'll try to intervene and that puts everybody at risk. Um, I would also say that you're not alone. You can get help. You just have to go to the right places. Um, I'm, a, I'm on the board of directors for the Hayes Caldwell uh, Women's Center Interim Housing Project. 
And I know that you don't have to live in the shelter to get help, and you don't have to be a victim to get literature and things uh, to educate yourself on how to help a victim. So make use of your local women's shelters um, and and educate yourself, find out what you can do, um, get details that I may not know about uh, to help the victim. And, um, you know, that that's about it. I would say don't victim blame. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. And you're so strong. I know some time has passed, but that's still really difficult. Like no time can heal, I feel like, a, a loss like that. Um, so, yeah, I commend you for speaking out and continuing to speak out. You know, it's been many years and you're, you know, pursuing this just as strongly as you were in the beginning. So, yeah, it's it's heard. I appreciate you. And I just want you to know that the work that you're doing is is definitely needed. Thank you so much for saying that. I, you know, I, I feel that sometimes when I give presentations, because even at the university level or the professional level, I, I initially was amazed at the people that would come up to me afterwards and share their experiences. You know, professors, well-educated people, um, law enforcement people who used to be in that kind of situation. And so, you know, I think people put a thumbprint on a particular type of person they think would be abused. Um, and it's not, it, it can happen to anybody, but you know, I, I, I feel like if, if you and I, if we can reach one person, one family, help their family member, not be murdered, not lose their life, not live a life of abuse, then it's worth it to try to reach mm-hmm. people, even if it's one person at a time. You never know yeah. what kind of a mm-hmm. ripple effect it will have, you know. So thank you for what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to do this, you know. I think not a lot of people, but some people have said, you know, be careful sharing your story or don't even share it at all. But I was thinking, you know, if this does save one person's life, that will be enough. Like, that's all I want It's just to help other people. And I feel like us being silent is you know, just perpetuating this cycle of abuse and who is that really protecting? Because it's not protecting the people that are in, you know, these situations at all. So Catherine and I got disconnected at the very end of this interview. Luckily, we had made it through most of the content and things that we wanted to discuss. So I just wanted to say a reminder, if you or someone you know is in need of assistance or support related to domestic violence, please refer to the resources linked in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in to the First Hustle Then Brunch podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, I'd love if you subscribed and left us a review. Another way to support the podcast is to take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram story. Tag me at First Hustle Then Brunch so I can repost it. Thank you so much for supporting the show and I'll see you in the next episode.